0: this guy i open. need a tan man you're you're right i look pale pasty why pasty's good skin cancer is bad that's true i stay out of the sun moving to athens uh, i had to get pretty serious about that because i got historic family past melanoma
1: oh really i play golf all the time well, white people love the sun they stay out in the sun all day i think like brown people and black people just don't like the sun they don't like sun related activities yeah i i think it hurts <laughs> i think it hurts more Oh, you feel it burning? Yeah, I think so because like I'm just like, how do people sit here and just sit in the sun with their shirt off? Well, do you wear sunscreen or not? All the time. Yeah, because because the
0: sunscreen will keep that pain away. It'll make it so that the sun does not feel like it's burning. I don't know. I still
1: feel it. Maybe I'm more conscious about it, but also it's just like every doctor will say like commonality of like bad skin is like sun exposure. (laughs) Oh, I know. Makes you look older, younger. If 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 you see, especially like uh, not to pick on white people, but it's just like if you see like right here where it's always exposed, it's it's got the freckly skin, and then outside of that. It's not. And you're like, well, I mean, we know what that is. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I'm pretty passionate about trying to make myself live longer recently.
0: And I just taking care of things that I know that if they are preventable, I'm going to touch on it and look into it. And not enough people do blood work. My successful friends with families, with businesses, hmm. not enough of them do blood work. Not enough of them go to the dermatologist. And those are like the two things that you do to make sure that
1: like skin cancer is... Number four killer of white males,
0: really? Yeah, and you can just avoid
1: that by going to the dermatologist every six months. You know what'll scare the hell out of you? Look at a UV camera of your skin, or just look at it up on YouTube. UV you camera see the through, past damage. You can you see the 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 upcoming damage. That's coming. So you could see underneath, you might have like perfect skin and like children, you put put it on them, they have perfect skin because there's no damage. Yeah. And then adults, as they get progressively older, you could see it underneath your skin, like all these freckles. And someone's like, I don't have freckles. And you're like, well, you're about to.
0: Yeah. The era that my <laughs> parents came up in, no one wore sunscreen. And it's sad because they're, they look
1: older. They, a lot of them died of skin cancer. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm, I'm going till 85. Did you know, I, I said a death date. Oh, death date. I have a death date. Yeah. November 17th, uh, 2067. I'm done. You're going to pull the trigger yourself or? Uh, Yeah. I mean, that's the current plan. People are just like, well, what if you're like the equivalent of 20 years old? I'm like, then I'll change my mind. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's, It's not (laughs) set in stone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't have like a timer set. But at the same time, I always thought backwards uh, from the time I was in middle school, high school. I was just like, well, everyone dies. So I'm going to die. So what age am I going to die? And by all statistics, I can say it's 78 based on the statistics I've looked up. Now, I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. I could live to 105. Who knows? But I'm planning the date as 85 in terms of like, this is how much time I have. And I know that. Yeah. So you could actually work backwards to things. I think there's a lot of folks that I know over 85 that have a really enjoyable life already.
0: There's a guy in my country club. He's 87. Comes in and gets coffee every morning at the club. Sits in the bar room and just chats with anybody that walks by all the time. Has a great time. Goes out and walks nine holes if the weather's right. He can't. He has to have a cat. He can't push his own cart anymore. But he walks around the golf course. Freaking awesome.
1: Yeah. That, uh, that's. Uh, do kids bring you a ton of happiness? I'm assuming so. I remember oh, yeah. how you showed me your kids, and I was like, "This guy loves his kids. <laughs> I love them." Yeah, I got a video. This I've been been away from him
0: for three days, um, two and a half days, and I got a video of him sent this morning by my father in law, and. I can't wait to get home and just hug them and hang out with them and kiss them. And yeah, it's it brings tons of joy, as you're hearing from Sam and some of our friends.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I've known it for a long time. I fortunately grew up in like a small, like kind of immigrant-based community uh, in Houston. We had a lot of family friends. And it just seems like after 40, what else is there to do? And I, get, I, I bet if you don't have kids, you could probably make your life good. But I also assume that part of the human experience is having kids in replication. Everybody that I know over the age of 55, maybe
0: 60. All they care about is their kids and grandkids. Yeah. I mean, maybe they're doing deals. Maybe they're having fun. Maybe they go on trips with their buddies. You know, they have a great relationship with their wife. But kids and grandkids are like everything they want to talk about. All their energy comes from it.
1: Uh, Yeah. I can't speak from direct experience, but I'm sure if one of your kids gets uh, very, very sick, nothing else matters in the world. Yeah, Like it all just fades away into black. And then that's the only thing. And
0: the world is hard. So you got to... Be used to watching your kids suffer a little bit, which people aren't good at. And I'm not good at. My wife's not good at. My wife's way worse at it than me. I'm at least a little better at it. <laughs> <laughs> make,
1: make them suffer for their own good. Yeah, exactly. A little bit of healthy suffering so that the suffer muscles grow. And okay. when So I'm my friend's resident dog trainer. For anyone who has a dog's barking or anything, I'm somehow very good with dogs. And I always tell them, I'm just like, okay, I will train your dog. And first of all, I'm going to train you, not your dog. But you have to let me be mean to your dog for about five minutes. Meaning I'm going to be the disciplinary and it's mm-hmm. going to want to bark and do whatever the hell it wants. The voice comes to up. That.
0: The dog knows what's going on. I do that.
1: Eh, yep. eh, uh, maybe you uh just to just to let it know. It's like, hey, we're serious here. Yep. Pay attention to me. Yep. Not not what's going on over here. And
0: when you have kids and people are watching your kids, it's not comfortable to watch somebody else do that to your kids.
1: Yeah, but it's necessary. I always tell them, like, you can't intervene. Like, you have to let me be a little bit mean to this dog. This dog will be a little bit afraid of me. Mm-hmm. But out of that comes respect. And then whenever we walk around and I go, hey, the dog will go, all right, all right, mm-hmm. cool, cool. Mm-hmm. And then after that, once I can trust the dog to be off the leash, do whatever it wants. You get wants, to have way more fun. It can do, it can be a dog. Mm-hmm. It, it'll never have to go in a crate. It'll never have to be left in some random room by itself. Yep. It could come join us all the time because we can trust it. Yeah, exactly and it's right. just like a little bit of like meanness up front, like five minutes of meanness up front, like a lifetime of joy. Being a dad Fair is, trade.
0: Being a dad is very, very comparable to that. Hmm. I had a healthy fear for my father and that led me to really respect him really trust him his decision making and also i cared what he thought and i didn't want to let him down so i shaped up a little bit you know what i mean yeah. the discipline the discipline is a lost art bobby Knight just passed away the, the famous basketball coach that would scream at his kids and be far end of the spectrum of a super disciplinarian i think that's i don't think that's a healthy way to do it but i think not enough parents are tough on their kids now
1: some of the, there's a uh there was a comedian. He told a, a bit that w- that was true. I saw him in a, in a podcast and one day his dad came home and they would like leave their bikes in the driveway and get really pissed. And one day he came home and boom, punched through a door. And they were like, what the hell is this? He's like, I told you kids not to put your bikes in the driveway. And Boom. He punched through another door and they were like, what the hell is going on? And after that, they were so scared of him when he grew up he was talking to his dad about that, and his dad was like, "Oh yeah, I was replacing all the doors." <laughs> like, I, like I knew, oh, I knew I was replacing all the doors. Like oh I, my I had gosh. bought the doors from like Home Depot or whatever, and he did that to like scare the kids. <laughs> like, it's a it's a tough
0: it boundary totally work, kids, because I don't think there's really a time and a place. The, the one thing that I don't love about sports and watching pro- professional sports is that grown men will scream and yell and abuse people that are just doing their jobs, whether it be a referee. Mm-hmm. teammate, somebody who let them down in some way, mainly how they treat referees, mm. like college basketball coaches screaming at referees. I can't think of any other work environment where it's ever appropriate to actually yell at another human being. And that's a slippery slope as, you, as people yell at their spouses and yell at their kids and stuff. So the raising the voice thing is also something that once you start doing it with kids, you start doing it more and more. and Then you realize, holy shit, I'm yelling at my kids all the time. Like, damn, is that really healthy?
1: I wonder if that's just part of the fun when you're in it. You're in that amped up environment. There's a crowd going, everyone's yelling at each other. Like that's kind of and part of
0: strategy too. Like people work these referees because it actually does help them get more calls. Like it's it's mm. a proven fact. I just don't love that about it, that all of our kids watch TV and watch grown adults screaming at people. But
1: maybe like in that context, it's kind of fun. <laughs> Uh, I get into it, too. I've I've yelled at some basketball games before. Yeah. Well, well, so, OK, so first of all, uh, let's welcome uh, Nick Huber, known as sweaty startup on Twitter. Very prolific. Uh, you sold a service company for seven figures, big in the self-storage uh, world, 1.9 million square feet, 50 employees. Is that is that is that your bio right there? 47 employees
0: that? lose count. Yeah, I'm a, I had the the blessing and the ability to write good copy. And it helps me lead people, helps me delegate, which we're going to talk a little bit about today. But it also gave me a blessing of finding a lot of people on the internet who cared about what I had to say and followed me online. So I've been able to spin up some other businesses, make some investments, um, eight or nine other companies that we're kind of nurturing and building in the background. But yeah, that's a great bio. Thank you.
1: And and you're you're in Athens, Georgia, which I assume is not a big place. Athens,
0: Georgia, 100,000 people, maybe 250,000 people in the metro area. Um, We're about an hour and a half away from the Atlanta airport and Raised my family there. Picked it on a map in 2017 huh. as a place to go. Interesting. Just randomly like that. Um, I was living in Boston, um, renting a, a three bedroom apartment above a hardware store for three grand a month, and not a good area. If you know, if you know the area, Medford, Massachusetts. Okay. Um, my wife had we just brought home a baby in 2017. She's like Nick, we need a house. Like this is okay. absurd. Right, we're parking out in a parking lot. We're walking across a busy street. We're walking up two stairs into a crappy apartment. I need a place to live. And I was like, yes, you're right. It's time to buy a house. <laughs> I went and saw a broker, a, a listing broker without her. And I went to drive around and look at houses. The lady said, the sweet lady said, what's your budget? <laughs> I said, well, I'd like to spend under $300,000. Mm, okay. <laughs> she goes, all right, get in the car. We're going out of town. We drove an hour out and looked at all these small towns and looked at these three bedroom houses with no garages and $10,000 a year property taxes on 4,000 square foot lots. And it's like, um, okay, this is, not what I, this is not what I pictured, and this is not what I want. Let's get the hell out of Boston. I was doing more real estate at the time, the, the service business, the moving and storage company, my partner, and we had a good employee running it. So I, my wife and I are like, all right, we're leaving, but where do we go? I, I'm from a small town in Indiana. She's from a small town in upstate New York. Didn't really want to go back there. Mm-hmm. Couldn't afford any major city. We liked city life, but we couldn't afford it. And we made a list of things we loved. On my list was golf, cycling craft beer no traffic good food and within an hour and a half of a major airport on her list it was family friendly great churches um just like yoga she said good restaurants mm. again no traffic and good weather was on her is really important to her and at the bottom of the list both of them was like where can we buy a house for three hundred thousand dollars <laughs> and um we didn't have many options Athens Georgia was one of those places I went there played some golf um, rode my bike in Athens, twilight. We visited the next weekend, put an offer on a house, bought a brand new build, 3000 square foot house, four bedrooms, eight minutes from downtown for $289,000. Hmm. Well, on a very small lot, not, not perfect, but it was a great. Started home for my family incredibly cheap, low risk move. We moved the family to Georgia, not having met anybody in the whole state. We didn't know one person. Wow. You don't, you didn't like think that you're going to miss family and friends and stuff like that. We'd never been around family. Um, we also got a lot of quality time because I was a, I worked a flexible job, was able to go back and spend some really good quality time with my my parents and she did the same with hers. Um, but yeah, it was scary. For, of course it was scary. And so, and so I, now,
1: I could not afford a great quality of life in Boston. I'm assuming you can now afford a great quality of life almost anywhere. Would you mm-hmm. move now or you just kind of settle there?
0: Well, an amazing thing happened is that those things that we loved, um, other people in the city live there, love those things too. And we've met amazing people. We have i have... Five of my best friends in the world live in Athens Hmm. um, that I met after I moved there. Hmm. We have a great church, great community, good schools for the kids. And you can buy a 10-acre, 10,000-square-foot house for a million and a half dollars. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) The negative is that during rush hour, it's two hours to the airport in the morning. Hmm. But So as I travel more and more, it gets tougher to live in Athens, but it's so affordable to live there in every other area of life. So to combat
1: this, I think you're buying a jet. (laughs)
0: yeah or a small like a small jet a small personal jet with several partners a couple hundred thousand dollars a year of overhead that'll get me around the east coast for the majority of my travel yeah are you flying this thing no we'll have some pilots we'll put it on charter program the economics of a private jet people think it's absurd people Mm -hmm. think you need 10 20 million dollars a year of income to do it and for most jets yes the twin engine honda jets that are four thousand dollars an hour fuel this one's six hundred dollars an hour fuel one pilot Small, but all three of my kids together weigh under a hundred pounds. So, <laughs> flying in a small jet, I can fit me, my wife, my nanny, all three kids, and we can get to New York City in two hours because the thing goes three and it's a, like 40. a station wagon of the sky. It's a vision yeah. jet. It's a vision jet by Cirrus, mm-hmm. and it's a personal jet. It's not a. It's not a private jet. I can't get to California. I can't even get to Austin. Mm. If it, it's just two, too, if I'm staying here for three days, I can't send the pilots all the way back to its home base in Chattanooga. I can't send them all the way back, bring them all the way back out to get me. It's not really feasible. So it's the place. It's the jet that I'll use to get from New York City to Key West to Nashville, Kansas City, the places that I have properties and business throughout the Midwest and Northeast. And I'm assuming there's a closer airport to you than the actual big airport. Eight, eight minute drive to Ben oh, wow. oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, so that, that to- totally makes sense. It does. Yeah. It's not that expensive and it's a complete necessity for the amount of
1: travel that I'm doing for all my personal brand stuff and, and all my business endeavors. I remember I, I visited Alaska years ago and there was a, there's some stat that like 25 to 40% of all adults in Alaska are registered pilots. Yeah. And I was like, why does everyone pilots? And it's like, it's so hard to get from place to place that you actually have to kind of fly a little tiny plane. These planes cost like $25,000. Yeah. They're, they're buckets of junk.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and you're up in the air. It's amazing the like technology. Yeah. That, it's
0: amazing how great aviation technology really is. And I think it's going to get way more common. And what it does is, it, it allows these smaller pockets of cities and places in the United States that are amazing. It allows those to be a place where somebody who has a lot going on with businesses, with travel needs, it makes it feasible to live there because there's more airports than there are subways, subway restaurants
1: in America. Do you know who has the largest fleet of private jets in the United States? No. Walmart. Really? Yeah. And and you think, like, Walmart, private jets, that doesn't make sense. They're all about being cheap. But they are small-town USA capital, right? So, uh, their execs who get paid a lot of money have to go to three different Walmart locations a day. You physically cannot go there with a car. You cannot do that on, like, you know, Delta. Yep. And so, they have tiny private jet. And, and once again... Not fancy private jets. We're not talking about a G seven hundred over yeah, here. Yeah. We're talking about a tiny little uh, plane that they hop around and get to that's places. That's the
0: equivalent of what I'm getting. That's a little bit safer, a little bit faster.
1: Yeah, exactly that. It's, it's got a parachute. It's got a parachute. It's a it's a great machine. I yeah. think they're gonna get. I think they're gonna be really common. That's a, so, so the the way I found you is of course through Twitter, and you are prolific. Very nice guy in person. Kind of a shit talker online. It's 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 a unique thing. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's like you' it's it's almost like doesn't match sometimes. Mm-hmm. Why the, why the shit talking? Does it work? I'm a, I've always been a my wife
0: calls me a pick meaning I pick on people I pick on <laughs> I, I, I like to get a reaction out of people it's just my weird sense of humor me and my friends were always goofing off with each other when we're on the golf course giving each other crap um, it's just who I am so when I realized that I could type a couple words in on the internet and people who I've never met would get angry and upset about that I just it, it didn't it didn't make rational sense so I decided to uh, have a little fun at, at times but it also being a little bit brash, being a little bit unique, not caring what people think is pretty rare on the internet because a lot of people get very offended when people call them names. Yeah, and I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't care what people thought as much. I've toned it back though. I've realized that there's just not not a lot to gain once you've reached notoriety and once yeah. you have things to, going on. There's not a lot to gain by being a jerk. So in the last couple of months, I've to- toned it back. I'll continue to tone it
1: back. But yeah, I like to have fun. I have a weird sense of humor. Yeah. I mean, so, so when I say shit talk, I actually don't mean a lot of mean stuff. I, I, I think I told you this before. There are about three times in every single week in the last, like, I don't know, year, where I think about this dumb tweet that you did, where you said, hey, one of my friends sent me a cool bottle of whiskey, and I'm drinking it with some Coke, and it was a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle, which is like, you know, a $1,200 bottle or whatever. was like, like an $8,000 bottle. It's okay. Pappy yeah. 20, or yeah. It's, it's well known as like the ultimate <laughs> crazy. Get, yeah. yeah, like most people will never have a sip of it their life and you were drinking it with like a diet coke and people were like what are you doing just exploded
0: yeah I drank a little <laughs> bit of it with with my dad when he came to work for me as a celebration I just took the cap off and set it next to it and poured a diet coke over ice and put a lime on it and I said I, I played dumb I was like yeah my one of my business buddies sent me this as a gift for doing a deal turns out it tastes great I would rate it seven out of ten but it was mixed with diet coke and it had a lime wedge on the top which is Blasphemy. I will not let my friends put ice on that. You know what I mean? <laughs> really fine whiskey. You can't put ice on it. So um, I'm a whiskey snob. Love it. And I just thought that that would be kind of silly, but I thought people would know that it was a joke. Uh-huh. Turns out they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, got all, I'm, I got lit up on bourbon Reddit, Facebook groups collecting bourbon. They were taking screenshots just saying we got another noob or something. It was it was. I got a reaction out of a lot of people, which
1: I think is funny. And then the other one, I honestly didn't know that it was a joke. It was the deck thing, and I think that probably blew up even bigger, right? I think that was yes. like worldwide news. Yeah, I because uh, I'm
0: people hate landlords on the internet, uh, um, especially all the folks that rent from a landlord and they get the rent increases every every year, but the landlord doesn't return their calls to maintain their property. There's a sliding glass door on the second level of an apartment. This is a picture that I just found on the internet. Mm-hmm. A sliding glass door on the second level of an apartment, which never makes sense, unless you have a big deck. And they had a really small deck on just the open side of the slide glass door. It looks absurd. Um, it's obviously a, like a development snafu of the deck being too small. And I, and I made a tweet that said, hey, I, I was able to you know spend $500 on this deck, and I was able to increase my rent $300 a month. The family and kids moved out. But I was able to re-rent it right away at the higher value. That's how you create value. This is how you do real <laughs> estate, and um, that, lit, that that made some people angry.
1: Yeah, there's a there's that a poor family, right. that poor family.
0: You kicked out of that deck, or kicked out of this apartment. I'm like, well, the kids were all able to help move. Like I saw the kids help move in the boxes. I was just playing dumb. And I kept getting people madder and madder and
1: matter. I, I think I originally actually saw it on su- the subreddit slash decks. Yeah. That's, that's because I'm a homeowner and this is the kind of stuff I read. <laughs> yeah. And I, I saw that. I remember thinking, because it looks so stupid, because it's like these two like little chopstick legs holding up this deck. Yeah, I'll get my editors super. of
0: this to put the deck picture real big it's on the so screen. so stupid. I
1: can't, like, I, but, but the amount of attention you must have got for that was ridiculous. Uh, 25
0: million impressions. 25 million. Did you get money That's for that? More people than New York did live in New York City. Was that was that was that during when X was cr- uh, paying out? Creators? I don't think so. Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, damn, that would that would have been good. I would be curious. I run it much. back once a year, though. I can run that again in a couple months here, and we
1: can see how big it gets. So when, when you blast out stuff to the world, is, is it primarily Twitter X, uh, or are you posting in other places? It doesn't yeah. look like you run like a blog or anything, do you?
0: I have a blog where all the show notes, are my podcast, I have two podcasts. Um, yeah, I've, I've seven people working full time at my media company. So they help me cross post on LinkedIn, we're doing Instagram clips. Um, we're trying to grow the reach as much as possible because um, the message of the sweaty startup and how entrepreneurship culture is a little bit wacky, especially Mm -hmm. for the kids who kind of think, oh, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm going to get into it. I'm going to watch Shark Tank. I'm going to raise money. I'm going to study Silicon Valley. Um, that's
1: not really how people are getting wealthy in my opinion. So my goal is to spread this message as far and wide as possible. So you do it, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, really all the things, all the things, all the places that will take your media. You have someone that uploads all the stuff. Yeah. So after, after this, you're going to get this, I'll send you the clip and then you're going to have your people cut it up, putting it. All the little clips. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And
0: I do a lot of just little vlogs. When I'm walking around my house, I have a thought. I'll say something on hiring or delegation, and I'll upload it myself to,
1: I'll use a cap cut in three minutes and upload it to Instagram. Really? So you're doing editing? Some of it. Yeah. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Huh. I always love hearing that. Mm-hmm. You know, MKBHD, one of the top reviewers, he does like something like 98% of his editing still. <sighs> he's a poor delegator, though. Uh, w- well, he's also <laughs> one of the top guys on the planet, so it's just like he's doing something right. That's but, true. But maybe, maybe the magic is in the editing. I think I'm not a good editor. I'll make that clear. <laughs> but, but you, could, it, it is from your brain. Like you could take a crappy piece. Uh, you know, you could take a crappy piece of content and like cut that part out, cut that part out, put that part here and make it good. So that that is kind of cool and heartwarming to hear. Yeah, I mostly just
0: put a little filter on it, put the captions on there, put a song in the background and upload it pretty raw. Mm-hmm. My stuff is very lightly edited. How do you piss off your best employees? I spend a lot of time thinking about and asking high-performing employees why they don't like their jobs. Mm -hmm. And my friends who work in corporate America, they're high performers. They really have two complaints that make them totally dislike a work environment. Number one is the boss makes decisions and moves very slowly, meaning they see something that they they need and want to change. They go to the boss and say, hey, I have an idea of how we can make this business better. The boss talks a big game. Oh, yeah, Nick, we can do all those things and then does nothing. Three months go by, absolutely nothing happens. That is super frustrating. Number two is they're surrounded by people who let them down, don't do their jobs, and basically C players who do the bare minimum and cause them a lot of stress. So employees hate their jobs when they're surrounded by C players and the boss makes very slow decisions. So if you can act with a sense of urgency and get things done at your business, and try to make the lives easier of these top performers, Mm -hmm. and you get rid of and fire these C players, um, you're going to build an amazing culture. I I have a theory on work culture that your business falls to the level that you tolerate, the competence level that you tolerate. So if you put up with C players, if people make mistakes and don't have any consequences, if these folks who can't make decisions and can't do their job well you know, coddled along and kept in the, in in the work environment, all your A players are going to leave and your entire organization over six months, a year, whatever it might be, will
1: fall to the level of that competence. And you'll end up with a C level organization. So, so what about, uh, I guess most of your job is just selling, right? So you said you have like six different businesses in the service sector and you're trying to get leads for them. Do you like sales? Did you learn sales? How did that come about? I was in a coffee shop talking to a mentor
0: when I was 25 years old in, in 2013. And he told me, I was complaining about sales. I said, I don't like sales. I don't like picking up the phone. I don't like confrontation. I don't like mm-hmm. asking people for money. And he looked at me and said, Nick, you need to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> and I was taken back. And he said, as an entrepreneur, 99% of your life is sales. You will sell your employees on your mission coming to work for you. You will sell your partners on investing with you. You'll sell your vendors on selling to you. you will, and obviously, you'll sell your customers on giving you money for what you offer. Mm-hmm. All day, you're selling. And when you get off work and you go home, you got to sell your four-year-old on getting in the car. <laughs> you better learn to love sales or
1: get a job. And that stuck with me. You told a story about kind of like, like a, a victim mentality of like having a mentality getting out of that. Um, Do you hire people with a victim mentality? What's your thought process on that? Who do you hire for that? I
0: had a victim mentality as a business owner. Mm. I was playing victim. I was pointing all around me at all the things that were going wrong in my business, and I was blaming my dumb employee, the labor market. We can't find anybody that wants to work hard. How many times have you sat back and listened to a business owner say, I just can't find anybody who wants to work hard? I was blaming everybody else for the problems. A problem would happen. I'd blame an employee. Something would go wrong. I'd blame a vendor. This would happen here. and I'd blame that person. Me and my business partner were sitting around at a bar, blaming the world for our business problems. And we eventually just said, this is getting us nowhere. You know what? It's your fault, Nick. Dan looked at me. Love him to this day. He said, it's our fault. Every time you hear me complain, he said, Mm. tell me and look at me and say, it's your fault. Every problem in the business, everything that goes wrong, it's your fault. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was like, you know what? You're right. You're absolutely right. So I have a question for you. What would you say is the hardest business? Like the, the, the highest odds of failure. You hear the rates of like something you'd never want to do. It's the hardest way to make money. Classic one I can think of is restaurant. <laughs> I would not get in the restaurant business. I agree. It's the hardest business in the world. You got... Almost virtually everybody at the company is working for minimum wage. You got a really sweaty, hot work environment in the back where you got to put out perfect food. You got entitled customers who might want their money back and write you one star Yelp review. Really tough. Look at Texas Roadhouse. <laughs> Texas Roadhouse, four billion dollars of sales, four billion dollars of sales, six hundred plus million dollars of annual profit, six hundred thirty stores, one hundred twenty full time employees per location, in small towns all across America, and they run the hardest business at scale. And what that makes you realize is that, hey, you point to a hard business. You point to a business that's really difficult. I'll show you a business that has been scaled and that has succeeded and somebody who's gotten rich doing it. So if you can manage people, if you can delegate, the world is your oyster. No matter How hard the business is. Obviously, some businesses are way easier
1: than other businesses, but you have no excuse because people have done it. So you mentioned delegation, but... Delegation seems really hard for most people. Why is that? Delegation is brutally hard because nobody has ever gotten any practice. Mm.
0: Never in our lives are we told that we need to get somebody else to write a ten-page paper in English (laughs) class. There's no teacher in America that said, "Hey, why don't you find somebody else to study for this big exam?" It's like against the rules, (laughs) (laughs) right? I ran Division One track and field, and I was the captain. I was a leader, right? But never one time did my coach, when I showed up, say, "Nick, we got four hundred. We got four four hundreds today." Then we got circuits. Then we got weight training. Why don't you find a freshman on the team to do all three of those things for you? (laughs) Never. So we have never been in an environment of practicing delegation. We've never been telling somebody else what to do. And delegation is a muscle. We can read about delegation. We can study delegation. People can listen to this podcast or watch these videos. And unless they go to the gym and pick up the weight and practice and make a hire and tell somebody what to do, they're never going to improve. And the average American has never been comfortable doing something like that. Are you hiring great people or normal people? One of the worst pieces of advice that I've ever seen is when a business mogul, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, these people who everybody hangs on every single word, they're in an interview like this and they're trying to be humble. And they say, the the question is like, what do you think is the key to business success? The answer is always the same. It's always, hire great people mm-hmm. hire unbelievable people I was able to build Apple to what it is because I hired unbelievable people I'm running a lawn mowing company or a moving company or self- storage company. How am I supposed to hire unbelievable people <laughs> to drive a lawnmower? That's just totally not approachable and so you think about like what makes an unbelievable employee they care about the business like I do as the owner they're able to solve dynamic problems. They're great decision makers they thrive in chaos they'll stay late they'll work nonstop. And what I realized pretty quickly in in business is that those people are unicorns. They're unicorns. They do not exist. People who care about my business like I do, they don't exist. So I had two choices. I can build build a business where normal people can thrive, or I can hire unbelievable people. And building a normal business, a, a business where normal people could do their job really, really well, turned out to be a lot more approachable.
1: And it worked out a lot better over the long run. And then uh, give me an example. How are you finding these people? Is it online? Is it in real life? Where are you finding all these people?
0: I think the... I was in a a Walmart parking lot in Ithaca, New York in 2014 or 15. It was like 7 p.m. It was dark out and I saw a 25-year-old clean-cut kid running through the parking lot (laughs) with his Walmart vest on and he was putting all the carts together and sprinting across the parking lot with the carts and on the way by he picked up like a a Walmart plastic (laughs) sack was rolling tumbleweed style down the through the parking lot he scooped it up and jammed it in his back pocket and sprinted in this blew my mind because every Walmart I'd ever been in nobody walked fast (laughs) nobody cared everybody's getting paid $12 an hour they're lollygagging around and they're just doing the bare minimum to get paid next week and be able to go home when, when they clock out I walked up to this kid and said hey Why are you going so fast? Like, what's going on? Kind of jokingly, and he said, "Well, I don't even actually work out here in the parking lot, but the person who did didn't show up today, or they went home. And there's a varsity basketball game going on right around the corner, and everybody's about to get out of that game, and they're going to come to Walmart before they go home. And we got no carts up here. Look, look, we got no carts. So I'm out here, and I got to get back there because we got no carts. And I could tell instantly, like, this guy's different. He can, he can care. He cares. So I pulled a business card out of my pocket and said, Josh." Do you know anybody like you who might want a job? Like I run a moving company in town. We pay twenty dollars an hour. It's fast-paced, fun environment. I'm a good boss. Like if you know anybody, have them call me or email me. Four hours later, he called me, and I hired him the next day, no interview. And he was one of the best employees we'd had. He worked four seasons with my moving storage company, and I realized really quickly that like I gotta I gotta be aware. I'm a hunter. I gotta look out at the at the world, and when I see a competent person working behind the bar and super aware of everybody and they're slinging drinks real quick and they care and they're moving really quick, I'm going to hand that person a business card and see if they want to come to work for me. It's Chick-fil-A drive-through line where the employees, oh man, super attentive, running around, caring, moving quickly. They got a sense of urgency. So I, I, I hire people in scrappy ways. I don't look for unbelievable <laughs> people. I, I look in my real world about who I might be able to hire in my town. You had this interesting framework called a 10-10-80. Can you explain that? So what I realized pretty quickly about the workforce is that, say there's hundred people in a room and they make up the entire American workforce, 10 of them, 10% of them are actively looking for a job. They're either unemployed or they hate their job and they're applying to jobs and looking elsewhere. On the other end of the spectrum, 10 of them, 10% of them are in career nirvana. Everything's perfect. They love what they're doing. They love where they are and they would not leave for a better opportunity, even if it came upon them. 80 of them, 80% of them are somewhere in the middle. They got a boss that really likes them, they, a boss that doesn't want to lose them. They like their job okay. They're not actively looking for other jobs, but if something came <laughs> along, they would, they would jump ship to do something better. And I realized really quickly that there's two ways to hire employees. Number one is fishing style. I'm throwing out a, a, a line and I'm reeling in it in. I'm hoping that one of those 10% of people who's hungry, the fish that are hungry, are going to bite my job application and come to work for me. You know, you can find the 10% of people who are actively looking for jobs that way. Or I can sit on a rock like a lion and be a hunter. And I can go out and find the people in that 80% that are always looking for better opportunities and convince them and bring them back to work inside my organization. And I realized really quickly that if you want to build an organization of A players, you got to hunt them down because the best employees, the best employees that I've ever hired, they always had
1: another job when I convinced them to come to work for me. So in this hiring process, you mentioned something about a motivational interview. What is a motivational interview? I like to, when
0: I'm hiring management roles or higher level roles, I like to get a feeling for what people really want out of the job. And the best way Mm. to do that is say, hey, you know, I know we're in an interview right now. You don't know anything about this company, but let's pretend that we're three years down the road and you walk in the same room. This is my office. You walk in the same room and everything's perfect. I ask you how things are going and you say, things are going unbelievable. I love what I'm doing. Family life's perfect. My work environment's amazing. Tell me about what's going on. How many people are you leading? What kind of problems are you solving? What are you doing every day? How much money do you make Mm. in this ideal world three years from now? And then I shut up. Mm. And I let them tell me what they want, exactly where they hope to be. And the whole time I'm thinking, can I deliver this? Can my company actually deliver this? I've, I've been interviewing for a, a, a warehouse mo- mover and they told me they wanted to run my company. And I was like, oh, dang, I just need somebody to move boxes. This is, <laughs> this is not ideal. Or you have somebody who you think might have managed poten- potential and it turns out I have a really small team. The problems are going elsewhere. I'm making 60 grand a year. I get off at five o'clock. I have a really good balance of work-life balance. And I was, okay, can my company do that? And it just teaches me a lot about who I'm hiring And if I can deliver that, which is a big part of it, because if you can't deliver what
1: that person wants, it's never going to work out and you're wasting your time. So when you're hiring all these employees, there's always this classic question of like, do you do a profit share? Do you do equity? How do you discern that? I do not like giving employees past the moment
0: of business founding equity or profit. I've tried many times. It has never worked out. My friends have tried many times. It works out sometimes. And look, I'm just a guy. There's some nuance here. It has worked. Some of my friends swear by it. Mm -hmm. I have never had good luck giving profit share and equity to an employee. Mm. It turns out an employee wants to know exactly what they're going to get paid every two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) If they didn't, they'd be an entrepreneur. Mm. Everybody thinks I'm I'm aligning incentives. I'm aligning incentives. Well, an employee is coming to you for a job so that they can know exactly what they're going to make every two weeks. I like to pay them the right amount of money. And it turns out people are motivated by different things. As entrepreneurs, we're motivated by upside. We're motivated by a little bit of risk. We're motivated by growth. But most employees are motivated by doing their job really
1: well, winning at work, and having a boss that respects them. When, when you're handing out jobs to people, you say there's like two levels of delegation. What are the two different levels? So as a business owner, you can get really far in life by
0: just delegating tasks. Mm-hmm. That's the first level of delegation. I'm going to tell you how to answer these emails. I'm going to tell you how to drive this truck. I'm going to tell you how to do this one thing, and it's repeatable. I've seen people get rich building businesses where every decision comes to them and everybody in their organization is doing tasks. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I'm telling people what to do, exactly what to do. There's a second level of delegation that is what can make people really wealthy and takes people out of companies and lets them own an asset that can make money while they sleep. And that's delegating decisions. Mm -hmm. So your employees are actually learning how to make decisions and solve problems so that every, every decision and problem doesn't come to you as a business owner. I know so many business owners who have really a job. They don't own a business, they own a job because they have eight, 10 employees, and every problem comes to them. The phone rings, it's a problem, it's their job to solve it. They tell all their employees to get out of the way, and they're the bottleneck in their business, because Mm -hmm. every problem is stacking up on their desk. What is monkey on the back? So when I am managing people, and they come to me with problems in my office, let's say we're in my office right now, they come to me and they say, hey Nick, I got this problem. The problem is a monkey on their back, Mm -hmm. and it's it's making all kinds of racket, it's hooting and hollering. (laughs) And as soon as they tell me what the problem is with the expectation that I'm going to solve it, that monkey jumps onto my desk and it's now my monkey. It's now my problem. Mm. Most business owners will say, okay, get out of my office. I'll take care of it. The monkey stays. It's my monkey now. Mm. (laughs) Two minutes later, another employee walks in. The phone rings, whatever it might be. Hey, Nick, I got this problem. Business owners, natural reaction because they're better at solving problems. They can handle it. Okay, get out of my office. I'll I'll take care of it. Five o'clock comes around. You got thirty monkeys in your office. <laughs> they're, t- they're messing up everything. <laughs> You're working till ten o'clock solving problems. None of your employees can wrangle their own monkeys. So when an employee comes in my office, I'm gonna I'm gonna reply with a question. Hey, mm. how would you solve this problem? Hey, what would you do? An example: self storage. Customer calls. Hey, I just rented a unit, but I c- came to my unit and it's locked. Mm-hmm. I can't get in. Like what the hell? What the hell's going on? My employee barges in my office. Hey, I got this customer on the line. They can't rent a unit. Well, what would you do? Uh, I don't know. What are you talking about? Well, what's our goal? What's our goal? And they'll say, well, our goal is to rent more units, <laughs> make more revenue. Okay. If that's the goal, how would you think about this problem? Well, okay. Our, our facility is 70% occupied. That means we got 50 other vacant units. Maybe I'll just tell them instead of renting unit 212, let's go over two units At 214. It's available. I'll have them move in that, move in that one.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Get out of my office. Go solve that problem. Take your monkey
1: with you. monkey on the back i've never heard it said like that when you say like decisions are a muscle yeah so when i think about decision
0: making and and i think there's such a a a comparable thing when it comes to kids and employees i love hiring teachers because it turns out if a teacher can manage uh 34 year olds they can manage 34 year olds really well (laughs) (laughs) but um uh, it, decision-making is a muscle, and uh, imagine a six-year-old kid, and that kid's growing up through life, and the parent is making every single decision for that kid. They're not letting the kid do any decision-making, just task delegation, right? They're not delegating any tasks. The kid goes to college. I went to school in Ithaca, New York, at Cornell, a high-end college, and we met. I met a lot of kids who came to college having never met a, made an actual decision in their life. Their parents had sheltered them from every decision. We'd be going to a party in college town that we needed to walk there, it's about a 20-minute walk. They'd call mom and say, hey, mom, should I take the bus? Should I walk? Should I get a taxi? It's 38 degrees out. It's a little bit windy. It might rain later. What do I do? They couldn't make the simplest decisions. A couple semesters go by and their entire life falls apart because they had never practiced making decisions. So my five-year-old, he's got to make a decision and I'm going to let him make these low-risk decisions, just like I'm letting employees make these low-risk decisions. Where the consequences are, maybe he's going to throw a fit for five minutes and cry, and then he's going to forget all about it 10 minutes later, so that when he's 18, and it's 1 a.m., and he's at a party, and he's got some serious decisions to make, he's not going to make the decision that ruins his life. Mm -hmm. Employees are the same way. So when you do this monkey on the back thing, and and they're bringing their problems in, two things happen. Number one is that employee gets better at making decisions. They get practice. When they're solving their own problems, they get practice. Number two, you get to look into their mind. Mm. You get to see how they think about things. How are they responding to the questions? Are they good at this stuff? Can they actually, you know, solve these dynamic problems? And what you'll learn is most people can't. And you need to taper back the expectations and take them out of decision making roles. But every now and then you'll get an employee that you really like the way they think. And these decisions, their muscle is growing. They're getting better. They're getting better. They're getting better before you know
1: what they can run your company. So you talked a lot about these hiring tactics, but it sounds like one of the biggest skills is knowing when to fire someone. How do you approach firing someone? If you're watching this or listening to this, I want you to think, run an exercise. Mm-hmm. Give me an
0: example of an employee who you've, you've given them some corrective action. You've disciplined them a couple of times. They just continue to make mistakes that cost you money. They're forgetful. And, and, and your mindset's like, well, I'm just going to keep working with them. Mm-hmm. They're, they're going to change. They're going to get better. They're going to get better. They're going to get better. I've done this many, many times. <laughs> it turns out that most people don't change. We Business owners, we're positive people. We're always looking at the glass half full. We think that, okay, I'm going to get to them. I'm going to train this person. I can do it. I can do it. I can change them. I can change them. I can change them. 80% of the time, they're not going to change. These business owners will not change. I'm not in the business of taking those odds. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in, in business, you can be really stressed out trying to change people, or you can get people in who are who you need and get people out who are not and let them change themselves. It sounds That sounds harsh. It sounds tough as a business owner. But if you're thinking of that employee that, man, I just wish they'd change a little bit. The, time to, the best time to fire that employee was a year ago. Mm-hmm. The second best time is today.
1: Fire fast and you'll, you'll be happy you did.